it's a supreme privilege for me to share my testimony with you, particularly as it pertains to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. While I was born in Highwood, I wasn't born in a barn, although I might as well have been. My earliest memories are on a horse, or throwing bales, or out with my dad. That amounted to a great substance of my childhood. That's who I was. That's what I was defined by. The youngest of three and the only boy, I grew up observing that leathery kind of toughness that comes only from a dad who works sun up to sundown. That toughness was in check in some measure by the gentleness and sweetness that my mother's and two older sisters presented as well. Other contributors to my childhood included exposure to loose language from cowboys and from hired hands who would put sailors to shame any day of the week. Add to that, most of all, my sinful disposition as a human. You can toss in a dash of small-town morality, a serving or two of the Ten Commandments, and a liberal little church, and you've just met Tanner John Ripley, age 11, junior high. Uh, Add to that the fact that I was late coming into puberty, and I was spiritually confused, and you have a pretty miserable junior high experience. Junior high was tough, amen? Can I get an amen? I don't care whether you were charter school, public school, private school, or home school, junior high were tough years. And if you're like me, you wouldn't go back to them for all the prime rib at Costco. I didn't like those years. And add to that fact, I think looking back, the fact that I was spiritually confused. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But those were hard years. It didn't help that I carried around in my pocket a get-out-of-hell-free card after I had raised my hand and prayed a prayer at the epidemic of VBS. That was followed by years of asking Jesus into my heart over and over and over again. And I was, to borrow the language, a whitewashed tomb, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Yet God, in his great forbearance and his patience, gave me what I did not deserve. That is more time. But not unlike some of you, that spiritual confusion and false assurance led to another profession of faith in early high school. This time it cloaked itself in the heart of the moment, but tragically, to my own detriment, was unaccompanied by very much real teaching or by Bible reading in the subsequent years. I lived as either a false convert or an anemic Christian. Sometimes the two, you know, are perilously perilously indistinguishable. It's a dangerous place to be in. Though I certainly in those years would have named the name of Christ, there was little evidence in me that I was abstaining from wickedness. And yet God, in his graciousness and forbearance, gave me what I did not deserve. That is more time. I don't know whether I was born again then or not. The uncertainty put me I'm sure you recognize in a dangerous place, limping along between two opinions. I hope it illustrates to you the fact of the importance of spiritual fruit, sound teaching, and participation in a sound Christ-exalting church where the one and others can be practiced and fleshed out. I appeal to you in college and your age and your stage to be all the more sure of your calling. Be more diligent 
to make your calling and election sure. Because true assurance is the one thing that every Christian ought to possess. It's a great gift from God. But this seed of uncertainty and quiet, subdued rebellion against certainly my parents, but utmost, as you know, against God, found fertile soil in my first year of transition from small-town hero to college brat. I wasn't yet moved into the dorms across the street before I became so intoxicated that I was left in the parking lot to myself, cold and lost, unsure of where to go or how to get there, unable even to use my phone. And thus began the roller coaster of my freshman year. A steady diet of beer and brats and spring breaks in Mexico, living on a co-ed floor and worshiping self. I was more intimately concerned with status than godliness, and I felt sick, empty, and about this big. They profess to know God, but by their deeds have denied him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16 I don't say this to glorify sin or for shock factor or merely to waste time. I say it because it's the honest truth. I believe it helps illustrate further what Sammy Rhodes said. Listen to this. College doesn't change your heart. It reveals it. College doesn't change your heart. It reveals it. Inevitably, around the time of July and August, I get myriads of calls from parents concerned about their child that's coming into college. It goes something like this. They're really a good kid. I know if you reach out to them, they'll respond. Uh, whether it's any number of places, whether they're going to MSU, whether they're going to work, whether they're going to Bible college. I know they're a good kid. I, I know they made a profession of faith. But I'm really worried that college is going to mess them up. Let me tell you something. College doesn't change your heart. It reveals it. And it revealed my heart. What Sammy Rhodes says is pithy, yet marvelously true. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, its way is death. And yet God, in his graciousness and great forbearance, gave me what I did not deserve. More time. I want to be careful transitioning from here to a passage in Luke 13, but I hope you'll turn there with me. I don't want you to misunderstand me as we look at Luke 13. I'm not reading God's redemptive work or Tanner into this text, but I doubt that I'll ever read this passage again without seeing the striking resemblance to my life. Luke chapter 13. For context's sake, we see Jesus teaching the crowds. He's giving various warnings and parables. And we see in verse 1, on this same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden someone comes and alerts him to this current event. And can you imagine trying to present a sacrifice to God and being chopped up like a sacrifice? Someone comes and alerts Jesus to this, and many at this time would have acquainted this circumstance with divine judgment. The people who had this happen to him must have been far worse Sinners than those of us whom it didn't happen to, right? Jesus does away with that right away. Look what he says in verse 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Far different from come down the aisle, 
raise hither your hand, what I was exposed to in VBS. No, Jesus says again, after another illustration in verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then verse 6, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach a valuable lesson on repentance. And as he so often does, he gives us a parable, an illustration to demonstrate his point. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. A fig tree represents Israel. That much is clear. The first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, are filled with imagery that talk about Israel being a fig tree. Well, what is this fruit? Well, the fruit is the work of one's life, how someone lives, acts, thinks, speaks, walks, treats others, how they're known or perceived or understood. And so it's reasonable, isn't it, that if you come up as a vineyard owner to a fruit tree, that you would expect some fruit. A friend who grew up in San Diego, and uh, anyone from a more tropical area in Montana? (laughs) We don't have a lot of fruit trees here. Apples, that's about it. Cherries. I, uh, I just had some apples from some Honeycrisps, you know, the real sweet ones from Washington. Wow. My friend's from San Diego. He had an orange tree, and his orange tree was so filled with fruit, he would go into his backyard, he'd pick an orange off, and he'd throw it on the ground, and he'd stomp on it, and break it open, and he'd pull it up, and he'd suck some orange juice out of it, and he'd toss it and do it with another one. There was so much fruit on that tree. That's what we expect from good trees, isn't it? Fruit, and plenty of it. So it makes sense when you think about it. That's why in verse 7 he says to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. So cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The tree was a waste. No fruit. And what do you do with dead trees? (laughs) You throw them away. Three years is plenty of time after all, isn't it? The tree wasn't in infancy. It had time to grow and produce fruit. But look what happens, verse 8. He, this is the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on some manure. He's going to dig around it. He's going to loosen up the dirt a little bit and so water can get on. Then he'll put on some fertilizer. That's a sensible thing, isn't it? Sometimes the ground gets kind of bad-tempered, crusty. It's hard to break up, and so the water doesn't break in. Uh, the adjustment to pastoral ministry, in some ways for me, post-college was difficult. I went from being uh, active all the time to needing to discipline myself to sit down at a desk and study, answer emails. I found that that was important, but often when I get home now, my wonderful wife notices a pattern. I'll walk around the living room without even realizing what I'm doing, looking for something to do. She says, you're doing it again. And I get restless because I want to get up and do something. So I'll go do things like water her plants outside. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? (laughs) She's a gardener. I'm not. I often drown them or uh, they die of thirst. There's one plant in particular. It's got herbs or herbs as I call them. And uh, the ground on it's real crusty, the soil there. And what I should do is break it up. I splash water on it. The water splashes off to the sides. That's the picture here. He's going to dig it up, loosen up the dirt a little bit. Then, verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year, great. Well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. It says, give it one more chance. And Israel got one more chance. And in 70 AD, they were ransacked and almost totally destroyed in judgment from God. 
In verse 34, Jesus would weep for Jerusalem. He was sorry for it. He knew what was coming. So it's important to understand here that the fruit is the outcome or the work of one's life. In this case, Israel. It doesn't make that person or that nation what they are. Rather, it's a result of what they are. You following what I'm saying? That's important. This parable has clear implications to Israel. But I believe it also keenly applies to my life and possibly even yours. Indeed, this parable, did you notice, has an open ending. And it illustrates the extreme long-suffering and graciousness of our God. After all, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. I was always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Then God, in His grace, intervened again in my life, providing a Bible study on the team I was playing on at the time. Again, I was confronted with the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we sat and studied the Bible, my friends and uh, some of my closest friends to this day, Joe Schreibeis and others, we sat around, we studied the Bible, and I was confronted with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Though perhaps not overtly at the time, certainly internally, I had to wrestle very soon with this question. Is Christ's work sufficient? Who is Christ and what bearing or impact does that have on my life? Is Christ's work sufficient? I wouldn't this morning pretend to know all of your backgrounds, not for an instant, but I suspect if you're sitting here that you've been through either one, the first 18 years of my life as a Pharisee, or the ensuing prodigal son stage of my next year and a half. Wherever you've been, wherever you are, Christ's blood is sufficient. The sacrifice is complete. And God would use people, His Word and His Spirit, to save me over that next year. And what's more glorious than what He saved me from, that's my sin and His wrath, is what He saved me to, and that's eternity in His presence. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be there. I hope that rapture comes. What is it, Saturday night? Bring it on this Sunday. I'll be watching. However you would describe it, the Lord has done a work in my life that is irreversible. However, the timing of the event, I could not be more uncertain. I made an empty and meaningless profession around the age of six or eight at vacation Bible school followed by a desperate plea as a freshman in high school where I could have come to know him, been born again. That was followed by finally a painful and steady change in my early years of college. And by God's grace, my life was beginning to bear fruit, not to become a Christian, but rather because I was one. I had Christ, or rather, He had me. He has me. And His sacrificial work is enough. Though I never quit attending church during this time, it didn't take long before my affections as a new believer for him led me to the things that he loves, that he's affectionate for, his church. I began for the first time to understand my privilege as a servant in his church and as an ambassador to the world. After all, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue such a simple wretch as I? If I know much of anything in college ministry, I've been in 
or around it for nine years now. It's that spiritual longevity is not guaranteed by temporary zeal. Yea, even Bible college zeal. Spiritual longevity is not guaranteed by temporary zeal. And I tell you nothing new this morning, but I do intend to stir you up by way of reminder. Let me commend to you often, say it this way, if you want sustained growth and vitality in the working out of your own salvation, go to the source. Peer deeply into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Treasure His magnificence. Glory in His work and boast of Him to the world. Let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf because that's where I need them. (laughs) If you're like me, you like to come out of chapel or any instance with something to chew on and think about. Maybe even something to do. I want to commend to you Read, memorize, even meditate on Colossians 1, 15 through 20, even 23. I don't want you to turn there now. I'm going to read it to you. And I want you just, as I read it, for you to listen to what the Scripture has to say. I almost studied this with you, but I didn't want it to be a repeat for those of you whom I studied it with last Thursday. It's stuck in my mind. I pray that it will be stuck in yours. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You can meditate on that. You can meditate on John 1, 1 through 3 or Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Can you believe that's our King? Can you believe that is the sovereign Lord of the universe, the glorious Christ that we just sang about? the one that we get to behold, the one that we get to gather and worship together, what a privilege. (laughs) What a privilege. Amen? Amen. That's our King. And I would ask and ask you in turn to ask like David that God would restore unto you the joy of your own salvation, that He would make it fresh and new and magnificent because of what Christ has done. So treasure, adore, Bow down and worship afresh the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You'll never be sorry that you did. But should you refuse, whether now or later, you'll be infinitely sorry that you did. Oh, that you and I, my friends, young and old here today, would be marked by true zeal steadfastness, and greater and greater manifestations of the Spirit of God in our lives. Let's be thankful for the sufficiency of Christ in our new birth, in our efforts towards Christ-likeness. So I exhort and remind my heart and yours this morning, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and firmly established in the faith. Let's pray together. A prayer this morning from an old Puritan 
found in Valley of the Vision about Christ. If you'll pray this with me. My Father, in a world of created changeable things, Christ in His Word alone remain unshaken. Oh, to forsake all creatures, to rest as a stone on Him, the foundation, to abide in Him, be borne up by Him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, and effected them. How sweet it is to be near Him, the Lamb, filled with holy affections. When I sin against Thee, I cross Thy will, love, life, and have no comforter, no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation, disunion, and distance from Thee, and having a loose spirit toward Thee. But Thou hast given me a present, Jesus Thy Son, as a mediator between Thyself and my soul, as a middleman who in a pit holds both Him below and Him above. For only He can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy divine justice. May I always lay hold upon this mediator as a realized object of faith and alone worthy by his love to bridge the gulf. Let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part and faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord when he is most near. If I, oppose, if I receive the word, I receive my Lord wherein he is nigh. O oh, who asks the hearts of all men in thy hand, form my heart according to the word, according to the image of thy Son. So shall Christ the word and his word be my strength and comfort forever. Amen.